it's great that you could be with us either at home on uh, YouTube or in the room with us. It's great. It's great to see some people I haven't seen in a while, so welcome to you. Uh, if, if you've not been in the room for a while, it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series today. Um, and so before we do that, though, let's pray, shall we? Um, because it's always good to do that <laughs> at church. Um, so, yeah, Lord Jesus, we just uh, thank you for today. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've been with us as we've worshipped. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we walk through this series together over the next few weeks, God, that you would speak to us through it. And that, Lord, it would bring about life change in people. Lord, I pray that as we go through this series, Lord, uh, Lord, it wouldn't just be more talks that we hear and gain more knowledge, but Lord, that you would come and change us by the power of your spirit, we pray. Lord, we want to grow to be more like you, Jesus. So we pray as we go through this, God, give us wisdom, Father, that you would use uh, both Richard and I who are preaching through this series, Lord God, to speak into the hearts and lives of those hearing, Lord God, I pray. Amen. Amen. So we're starting a new series, as I've just said, and it's called uh, Meals with Jesus. And we're basing on a book by Tim Chester, which is A Meal with Jesus. And just an encouragement to you, really, if you like reading, and I know that's not all of us, if you do like reading, this is a very good book. It's by Tim Chester, and it's called A Meal with Jesus. Okay, so it's a really excellent little book. Um, it's not long, and we are going to be looking through that. So we're using the themes for this book in order to speak to it. And you might go, that's a bit random. What a, what a weird idea. Meals with Jesus, what on earth is that about? Well, look. When we read Luke's gospel particularly, we see the theme of food and meals coming through all the time. Whether that's, uh, and you see it throughout the other gospels as well. So whether that's providing uh, the miracle of, of, of wine at a wedding reception like we see in John, or feeding 5,000 hungry people, or sharing a simple Passover meal with his disciples. He, Jesus is never far away from food. I don't know if you've seen Ocean's Eleven. I mean, it's, it's, old, it's, quite, it's an old film now, but... There's this, you might not have noticed this, it's one of the, like, my weird facts that I know. So throughout that film, uh, Brad Pitt eats in every scene he's in. So if you, watch, if you ever see it on telly again, you'll see that Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven, he always has food in his hand. It's like they did it as a little joke throughout the movie. And also he does that in other films he's in as well, he eats all the time. And it's a bit like that with Jesus in Luke. I'm not saying Jesus is like Brad Pitt. Um, but it is a little bit like that in Luke. Jesus is, never seems to be too far away from food or, or from a meal. He discipled, he delivered, and he demonstrated whilst he sat around a table with other people. And we're going to explore these meals, or six meals uh, that we see in Luke. And we're going to learn some key lessons about Jesus' kingdom as we do that. And we're also going to be setting an example as well. Because Jesus demonstrates that having meals with people isn't just about filling your belly... But it's a brilliant way to develop deeper friendships with people, to encourage one another in following Jesus, and also to take part in the mission that he sets for us to see others reached with the gospel. So the topics we're going to look at as we go through the series, well, today I'm going to speak about grace. We're going to look at a story from Luke 5. Then we're going to look at community, hope, mission, salvation, and promise. And one of the other reasons why we're doing this as well is, look, we are... I mean, as Richard said a second ago, we are praying that um, the 19th of July is the point where we're able to sort of say, yes, we can start meeting together. I'm praying that there are no restrictions placed on us and that we can do what we, what we want to be able to do. Um, but we also know that, I mean, we've had, we've had a great response so far to those questionnaires, and they are really important to us. We want to serve you well. Like, it's genuinely our heart as a leadership team to serve you as an individual coming onto Gateway well. We recognise that we're all at a different place. We have different opinions. Different, we feel differently about coronavirus, depending on maybe what's happened in our own lives or what's happened to somebody that we know. 
Maybe our own health might affect how we feel about it. And we know that there's anxiety, there's fear, there's concern. What, what happens as we gather back together again? Um, and so look, as, we, as we come out of this season, just encouraging you to have a meal with somebody else in a safe way is a great way of starting to reconnect together. And, you know, social and being social together is really, really important. So that's the other reason why we're going through this series. Anyway, let's get into it. Well, as Jesus went about his ministry, people questioned who he was and what he was doing. It was constant. Throughout the Gospels, you see it constantly. There was this expectation that had been that had built up. I speak about this a lot. It's important. You need to understand when you read the Bible that it has context. Okay? So it has a context to it. In its, in its own time that it was written, it has a context to it. So the context around Jesus was that, that they were expecting a Messiah to turn up. The Jewish people had been waiting for this promised saviour to turn up. And for them, it, it, it wasn't the way that we understand the Messiah to be now, looking back on it. They understood it differently. They were waiting for somebody to free them from the occupation of the Roman Empire. They were wanting a king like David, an actual king, somebody who was going to take a throne, reinstating Israel as a world power. So you obviously, you know, in, in the, the, the childhood story of Jesus, Herod, who's the the, the king over Israel, he's, he's effectively kind of, um, he's got some control and autonomy from Rome, but really he's under their kind of uh, their authority. He's threatened by Jesus. He's worried that Jesus is going to turn up and, and, and threaten his throne. Jesus starts saying things and doing things that would make him, in one way, an ideal candidate for this Messiah. He gets a large following. And it includes actually many who try and test him on it, as we'll see in a, in a moment. Yet his methods and his comments leave people constantly questioning, is that really him? Like, could that really be the Messiah, given what he's talking about? He doesn't seem to be the person we imagined the Messiah was going to be. Because the thing is, Jesus goes even further than just being seen as a Messiah. He continually uses a term that we see in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So Daniel has these prophetic visions, so Daniel 7. And he uses a phrase when he's having this prophetic vision, and he has, he has this phrase, one like the Son of Man. He sees somebody, Daniel does, who looks human and represents humanity, but there's even something more about him. It's like if you saw an animal that you'd never seen before, you might go, well, it was sort of one, it was a bit like a lion, but it wasn't quite a lion, it was a bit like a lion. So Daniel sees one like the Son of Man. And in Daniel's vision, this Son of Man is granted authority, glory, and sovereign power by the Ancient of Days, that is God. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He, he, he self-owns that title. I am the Son of Man. And he's making an explicit link between Daniel's vision, vision and himself. More than just an earthly Messiah, Jesus is actually claiming sovereignty when he uses that, that, um, that kind of name, that title. Here are some examples. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Jesus has come, the Son of Man, the one who's granted all authority, wisdom and power. He comes to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. There you go. It's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? So the Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost. And how does he do it? He comes and eats and drinks. <laughs> the God-Man comes to serve, to save, to seek what is lost by eating and drinking. 
This is, this is the argument that Tim Chester puts out in his book, that actually Jesus, a lot of Jesus' method for ministry comes out of meals. He disciples people over meals. He instructs people over meals, and he demonstrates who he is around a table. My memory, um, for fact, is pretty good. Um, if you were on any of the online gateway quizzes, you will know that I'm full of useless information. Um, yeah, I don't remember conversations very well, which is why I'm terrible in an argument with my wife, because she remembers everything I've ever said down to the last letter. <laughs> She's amazing at remembering conversations, and that's why we're a really good match. I remember the facts, and I know where we're going, and she remembers the conversations. But I can remember meals. It, I can remember meals better. So for me, the way that my memory works, they play a significant role in my memory. Like the time my dad's here to say, Dad, do you remember when we drove down to France and you tried to cook bacon on the engine of the car? <laughs> so I remember that. It's like a memory for me. I don't remember the conversation that took place. I just remember the, remember the moment. Or, or, uh, or, or fish and chips that we had when we first moved into our first house with Claire, Claire and I when we, we got married. Or the time that my best friend and I, we, we were in holiday in Spain and, um, and, and we just we decided to have this meal together and we, we basically went out to the supermarket so um, our, our wives had gone out for a meal um, and a friend who was with us had gone out for a meal and we were, we were back at the house looking after his daughter and, um, and we decided we were going out for a meal and we were going to cook a meal and so we bought as much meat as we could possibly find and we bought as many prawns as we could find. We were, honestly, we were so full up. And I remember that meal was really specific for me because it wasn't just the meal that was important. We shared our hearts with one another. We shared vision with one another. We encouraged one another. And it was like, we, it's often something we talk about. You know, we, we're actually going on holiday together this year and we're like, oh, let's have another meal like that again. Because meals can be significant in our lives. And, and we can remember things over meals. And I think that's true of the disciples too. I think, you know, when Luke sets about writing his gospel, we, you know, Luke, Luke is a, a, a great historian he goes through and tries to find out exactly what took place. I, I think that the, the disciples remember the meals. They remember those times when they were sat with Jesus and what Jesus did around the table. Because it's in the meals we see the heart of the king and the very essence of what his kingdom looks like. So anyway, let's look at Luke 5 together. So we're going to look at this, this story. It's very brief. Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. So this is about Levi. So after this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And so Levi got up, left everything and followed Jesus. Then Levi gave a great banquet. It's like a party. You and I would say that's a party. Okay? Gave a great party for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat? And drink with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is our brief story. This is our brief meal, this party moment after Levi has been called. So first of all, Jesus calls Levi. Very similar to the calling earlier on in Luke 5, as Jesus calls his, uh, the disciples who are fishing. They, he tells them to leave their nets and they follow him. And they leave everything. And in the same way, Levi, this tax collector, exhibits the same sort of faith in following. He leaves everything. He's sitting at his tax booth. He will have had money there. He'll have had all his receipts. He'll have had everything. His little kind of office. He gets up and he follows Jesus. And then he takes him back to his house. This is an aside, but it's, it is worth noting. I am going to come back to this actually a bit more later on. So it's not quite an aside. 
Um, following Jesus always involves a cost. Always involves a cost. Following Jesus isn't a praying, praying a prayer of repentance. If you think that's, that's what you can boil the Christian faith down to, just a, a prayer of repentance, that isn't following Jesus. Yeah, you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but you need to follow him. Following Jesus isn't just coming to church. It's not. Following Jesus means being prepared to leave everything. It means, it means being able to sacrifice everything to follow the one who calls you. That might be your family, habits, behaviours, identities. In order to walk in commitment to him, we have to be prepared to leave everything. Levi is prepared to leave everything and follow Jesus. And so he does. And he invites Jesus back to his house for a feast with his other colleagues. Now, Levi was a tax collector. And you might look at this and go, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Why, why, is, why is this such a big deal? Why are the Pharisees so upset and up in arms? We'll talk about them in a minute. Um, why are they so upset about tax collectors? What's that, what's that all about? Well, as I said earlier on, Judea, which is what we would call Israel today, so Judea was, was part of the Roman Empire and it was a vassal state. So the, the Romans had taken control of, of uh, a large area, um, which was called Syria, and part of that was Judea. And they'd set a, 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 in place a regional government structure. So at the time of Jesus' ministry, Herod, the Jewish ruler, operated under some, some autonomy from Rome, but only as much as they ever permitted him to have. And we see the political climate at play in the crucifixion narratives, don't we, with Pilate and Herod. Pilate working for Rome and Herod, the Jewish ruler. Relationships were strained between the Jews and the Romans to the point where in AD 70, which is what a lot of the prophecy about in Matthew, but also in, in Revelation is about, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed after a huge revolt by the Jews. So, the, you know, so 40 years after our events are taking place, like this whole relationship kind of comes to a head. This, there's this political climate going on. So what about the tax collectors and why are they, what, what's, what's significant about them? Well, these were Jewish people, but they were working for Rome. They were enforcing and taking money off of their fellow Jews and giving it to Rome, whilst also pocketing some of the money for themselves. I mean, that's outrageous. I mean, I, I like loyalty. Loyalty, you know, loyalty is a good thing. We, we value loyalty, don't we, in our culture? Yeah, we value it. We, we think that loyalty is good. These people were traitors. They were betraying their own people. They were cheats. They were, like, in, in, in the Second World War, it's like, you know, what happened in France. They had Nazi informants. French people informing other French people to the Nazis. You see, you think that's outrageous. How dare anybody do that? And this is what the tax collectors were doing. What kind of Jewish, Jewish teacher, therefore, somebody who's proclaiming to know God, would dare to talk to those kind of people? Worse still... Sit down and have food with them. I can't believe what Jesus is doing, say the Pharisees. That's outrageous. And what compounds the problem even more is that the Pharisees are the Pharisees. And as a subset of Judaism, so there were four kind of subsets. You've got the Zealots, the Essenes, the, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The, 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 the Pharisees have built their beliefs on following every letter of the Mosaic law. So Moses' law, as written down in the Old Testament, so you were righteous to them in God's eyes if you followed the law. You were acceptable to God if you followed the law. And those that did that, well, they were better than everybody else. Well, I can walk with my head held high in public because I know that I'm better than you. That's, that's how they behaved. They developed a deep sense of self-righteousness, that they were better than everybody else. 
And anyone who didn't measure up to their own ideas, well, actually, they should be ostracized or ignored. It is a lot like those who shout down others on social media for not holding the same opinions that they have. Well, I'm, I'm better than you, and, and, I, and I, don't, I don't want to listen to your opinion. I'm just going to shout you down and ignore you until everybody blocks you. It's that kind of attitude. In their culture, the Pharisees were who you would invite to a party. You might not like them, but they were the cool people. They were the, well, well, these are the godly people. These are the holy people. Well, I need to invite them along to the party. I need to invite that person along because they're seen as being somehow better than everybody else. You will see the Pharisees throughout what we talk about over the next few weeks as the main foil and opponents to Jesus throughout Luke. His ministry reinstitutes outsiders. Luke says a lot about this. The, 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 whole, the whole message of Luke is about the outsiders coming in. Jesus forgives sin and works on the Sabbath. These things directly challenge the Pharisees' beliefs, and we see that in Luke 5 quite clearly. Jesus is choosing to party with tax collectors and sinners. Now, uh, sinners in this context, the, the Jewish Mishnah states, would describe sinners as gamblers, moneylenders, thieves, the violent, and shepherds. Shepherds were in, included in this batch of people, right? So you know, when, you know when Jesus is born and it's the shepherds who get called? The shepherds were like the outcasts in society. They weren't seen as nice folk. Okay? It was a, a, like a catch-all phrase to describe unsavory character types. You called somebody a sinner, you were basically saying, oh, they're sinners, I don't want to know them. They wouldn't be people you would let into your house. They would be, you know, it's like when, when somebody knocks on your door and you don't want to let them in. It's that, that, you wouldn't want to let these kind of people in, let alone have a party with them. Yet Jesus decides to sit down at a table with them. The Pharisees found tax collectors so unpalatable, they didn't even want to look at them. I mean, like, imagine that. Imagine you work to somebody. Imagine you're a worker and people didn't look at you in your job. That, I know that happens today in our culture. But they wouldn't look at tax collectors because they were so disgusted with them. Jesus sits down and eats with them. The Pharisees, the ones who are accepted and trusted society members, stay outside of the party looking in and complaining. And by eating a meal with the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was challenging the very values of the society that he was in. And, and, and as he was doing it, the whole world for these people was starting to turn upside down. You need to understand the significance of what's happening. The world, in their eyes, is being turned upside down. The first were all of a sudden last. The Pharisees, the, the ones you would invite to the party, the, the ones who were holy and righteous, the ones who, who, who thought better of themselves, all of a sudden they were outside. The ones that nobody wanted to meet, nobody wanted to have anything to do with. The ones that everybody would call sinners and, and degrade and think that nothing of them, well, they were invited in. All the while that Jesus conducts his ministry, the Pharisees follow him. They follow him. You know, it's interesting. We, I talked about Levi following Jesus. The Pharisees also followed Jesus. They followed him round. They followed him round. But you see, there's two types of following. You can either follow Jesus closely or you can follow him at a distance. And all, they, all the while they follow him, they question his authority and they have a disbelief in who he is. So what does all this teach us about God then? Because it's important. We learn some lessons here about God. What does this all teach us about him? Well, at first of all, we see grace on display in this story. This is a story about the grace of God. This is outrageous. How dare how dare Jesus sit and eat with these sinners and tax collectors? In God's kingdom, everyone is invited. 
There isn't an individual who doesn't receive an invitation to the party. You see, the thing about this story is that the Pharisees' own self-righteousness barred them from coming in and celebrating with Jesus. If they'd have wanted to, I know that Jesus would have moved along on his section of the table and said, come and sit and eat. But they wouldn't come in. They refused to do it. We see this later on. We're going to look at this story later on in Luke 14. The parable of the great banquet, actually, is a story that Jesus tells. And here, guests are invited to take part in a great banquet, but they ignore and refuse the invitation. Instead, the invitation gets handed out to anybody else that they can find, and they get invited instead. You see, it's it's in our story. It's not as if the Pharisees weren't invited to, to join. They refused. God invites everyone to come and follow him. He invites you to come and follow him. He invites me to come and follow him. We are all invited. If you're watching at home and you don't know Jesus, you're invited to come and follow Jesus. We are all invited. And we see in Revelation that actually the, the people that do follow Jesus are made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're all drawn together as God's people, worshipping Jesus together. The grace of God, the invitation to not only eat with him, but to follow him, the invitation to not only be adopted by him, that, that invitation is, is handed out to all of us. You are invited. No one is excluded in the the invitation to come follow me. Maybe you think you're too bad for God. Well, that's hilarious because in this story, the tax collectors were seen as the worst of all people. Yet here they are, eating a meal with Jesus. You know, no one's too good for God either. You know, and that's what we see in the Pharisees. Early on that day before Jesus called Levi, he'd forgiven a man's sins. You know, there's a, there's a sort of story sandwich. He, he calls the, the first disciples while they're fishing, then he forgives a man's sins, and the, the, the Pharisees are outraged. How can this man forgive sins? Only, only God alone forgives sins. Everybody can come to Jesus and know his forgiveness and his freedom. We're invited to follow him and give up self-righteousness and receive his righteousness. The grace of God is extended to us. It's extended to you today. There's another aspect to this as well, and this will be more for the majority of the people listening to this message today. The longer that we have been Christians, the longer we have the opportunity to become like Pharisees. We can all get judgmental and picky about others who we deem less Christian than ourselves. And that results in us becoming self-righteous. We can end up thinking, dangerously, that maybe God approves of us more than of other people. We might not want to associate with those that we deem to be sinners in our culture or whose lifestyles we find distasteful. Yet Jesus is calling us to go and invite them to follow him and invite them to the meal. Secondly, we could even become so judgmental about other Christians and start saying things like, well, I'm just not really sure they love Jesus as much as I do. You know, we can start behaving in that way. The danger is we can all become like the Pharisees. We laugh at them, we look at them and go, that's ridiculous. But the danger is we can all end up being like that if we're not careful. Maybe you're following Jesus like a Pharisee. There's an element of disbelief in you as well. Maybe there's more than just a nagging doubt. There's an unwillingness to fully hand yourself over to Jesus. Are you like that? Are you behaving like that? Are you, as Jesus puts it in Revelation, lukewarm? Is church just something you you now watch on a Sunday? Here's the real danger of the situation that we walk through. It can just be something we watch. And, and go, well, that's, my, that's my, my job done for the week, my Christian job done, ticked off my list. Is church just 
a place you turn up to, is faith a badge that you wear when it suits you? The Pharisees were engaged in being ritualistic. Their actions were habitual. They obeyed the letter of the law, but they completely missed the heart of it. I read this this morning in my own quiet time from Isaiah 66. These are the ones that I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my words. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck, and whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. What am I getting at here? Well, look, what's odd about these verses is that sacrificing bulls, offering lambs, grain offerings, and memorial incense were all part of the law that God himself designed. Yet here, we see that these practices have become detestable to God. Why? Well, because those engaging in them had completely missed the point of why they were designed in the first place. God doesn't want ritual from you. He doesn't want ritual from you. He wants relationship with you. He wants relationship with you. So Isaiah writing to these people is saying, look, God doesn't want this from you. He wants relationship. Jesus wants relationship. He wanted relationship with the Pharisees, but they were convinced that God wanted ritual. Reading your Bible, coming to church, engaging in Christian practice, even prayer can all just become rituals. Yet Jesus calls you to a relationship. Engaging in a ritual and not seeking a relationship with Jesus is lukewarm. It's what what Jesus calls being lukewarm. If you you read Revelation, it's being lukewarm. It's like being neither hot or cold. And Jesus says, actually, if you're like that, if you carry on behaving like that, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's it's the equivalent of, of the word meh. Yeah? If you, if you eat a meal and it's a bit in there, yeah, it's all fine. It's okay. You know, if you eat, sometimes you eat a, a meal and you go, well, at least it filled the hole. Yeah? It's a little bit like that. It's just a bit in there. Sounds harsh, but think about it. You can know his grace, know his love and his salvation and still just be a bit in there. Yeah? You can see a world in need and have all the answers, but still be in there. If you live like that, you genuinely miss the best that God is, has for you. You do. Are you just like the Pharisees, more content with standing outside on the outside being grumpy than taking a seat at the table and enjoying the company of the king? The Apostle Paul was himself a Pharisee, but he finds Jesus. And he says this about his old way of doing religion in Philippians. Whatever, whatever gains I had, these I've, I've come to regard as a loss because of Jesus. More than that, I regard everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He understood that it wasn't about ritual, it was about relationship. I I can know Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. That, That word in the Greek is poo, in a stronger sense. I regard them as poo. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. Paul basically says this. I don't want to be self-righteous. I don't want ritual. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. Jesus calls you to come follow him. He invites you to come and take a seat with him at the table. And that's what we're going to be doing this series. We're going to be encouraging you to come take a seat with Jesus at the table. Come and enjoy his company. Jesus invites you to relationship with him. So what's your response to this as we close? Well, First of all, maybe you just need to just re-accept the invitation again today. Maybe you've actually walked away from the table and you've started grumbling and complaining. 
Maybe you're behaving like a Pharisee and you need to repent of that this morning. Maybe you've never followed Jesus before. And like Levi, you need to just say, Jesus, I want to follow you today. And thirdly, maybe you want to invite somebody around for dinner that you wouldn't normally invite around for dinner. Why not invite somebody over that you would not normally invite over and find out all that God has for them and for you as you meet with them? So there's some responses here for us. Let's just pray as we finish this first in this series. Lord Jesus, I just... Jesus, I, I just I want to know you. I, I, I'm fed up of ritual. Um, I'm fed up of, uh, of, of just the ritual things, Lord God. I just want to know you, Jesus. I want to know you. Lord, I want, I want, to, I want to be somebody, who's not, I want to be somebody who, who people look at and go, he just knows Jesus. And I pray that over other people in our church as well. I pray that for everyone in our church. That as people look on us as a church community, they'll just go, Gosh, they really know Jesus. Lord, because you're what it's all about. You're what it's all about. Lord, you invite us to come and sit at your table and it's a free, grace-given opportunity that we can all accept. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would accept that invitation to come and have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, for anybody watching this today who just needs to know that they have been invited. Lord, I pray that they would have heard those words clearly. They have been invited to come and sit with you. Lord Jesus, I pray for anybody in this room today or watching at home, Lord God, who just goes, oh man, I am behaving like a Pharisee. Thank you that your grace is extended to them. Lord, I thank you, Lord God. We don't walk in condemnation. We're free from it. And Lord, I pray today that if, if that's anyone here, Lord, I pray that they would walk away from that sense of self-righteousness and turn back to you, Lord Jesus. So we pray that we'll deepen our relationships with you as we go through this series, deepen our relationships with one another and enable us to reach out to the world that so desperately needs to hear about